Good afternoon again. Please turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 18. And our passage this week is the first 15 verses. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick! Three say as a fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, and about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Father, I just pray that you would move in this worship service today, that your spirit would overcome all our own imperfections and iniquities, so that our worship of you, Lord, would be what you desire, and what you desire to do in your people today would be accomplished through Christ our Lord in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Although we're only taking the first half of chapter 18 for today's passage, I would like to say one or two things about the combination of chapters 18 and 19. I mentioned back in chapter 11 that we would be in this section called the generations of Terah until chapter 25, verse 12. Terah, you remember, was the father of Abraham and the grandfather of Lot through another of Terah's sons, Haran. And we've been following the lives of Abraham and Lot all the way through these last several chapters. And not just following their lives, but we've actually been comparing and contrasting the directions of their lives all along. What we see in chapters 18 and 19 is the culmination of that comparison and contrast. If you look closely at the narratives that are set out in chapters 18 and 19, you can see that those narratives are nearly parallel in the way they're structured. In chapter 18, Abraham is sitting by the door of his tent when he's approached by visitors. In chapter 19, Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom when he's approached by visitors. 
They each bow down, they each offer hospitality, they each bake and eat bread with their visitors. The visitors have messages for Abraham and for Lot. Sarah laughs, Lot's sons-in-laws don't take him seriously, thinking that he's joking. More parallels than that even could be stated. But the parallels aren't there just to show similarity. The parallels also show contrast. Lot's hospitality to the angels is interrupted by the people of Sodom. And in the later part of chapter 18, Abraham learns that God's mercy toward both the righteous and the wicked, even though the outcry against the city is great, he learns God's mercy. While in chapter 19, Lot witnesses the destruction of not only the wicked city he's been dwelling in, but even witnesses the destruction of members of his own family, his sons-in-law who wouldn't come with them, and his wife who looked back when she was told not to. Eventually, we will see that Lot's path ends in the destruction that comes from both living in the midst of wickedness and also from living outside God's covenant blessings. Abraham, on the other hand, despite his own sins, despite his own doubts, despite the challenges he and Sarah have endured and in some cases brought on themselves, we see their story continue as a tale of blessing. The reality is that they have been recipients of God's blessing because of God's covenant with them. God chose Abraham to bestow his blessings upon him. God did not choose Lot in the same manner. And we'll have more to say about Lot again when we go through chapter 19. But for now, let us just praise God for his choices, for his electing grace. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not his ways. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now let's also take a look at these visitors that come to see Abraham. In verse 2, it says there were three men. And in verses 9 to 15, we find out that Yahweh is a part of this delegation in some fashion. In verse 10, where it says, the Lord said... If you look at the way that's written, as I've mentioned before, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, being represented there by the Lord, typeset in those small caps. So in some sense, this is another theophany, another appearance of God in human form. At first glance, as Christians who have the benefit of the full revelation of God in both Testaments, we might be tempted to look at these three men and think, this is maybe some sort of representation of the Trinity. And that even seems like an appealing thought at first. But if you just read through the rest of the chapter and into verse 1 of chapter 19, you see that can't be the case. Because in verse 22, it says the two men left and went towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. And then in verse 1 of the next chapter, it says that the two angels came to Sodom. So clearly then, one of these three men who have come to the tent of Abraham is the Lord himself, and he is accompanied by two angels. I'd also like to pause here and note something about this theophany, this appearance of the Lord. Look what it says in verse 3. It says that they ate. Now, it would be absolutely stretching the bounds of both language and reality to suggest, for no reason except some philosophical pre-commitments, that the Lord in this body didn't actually eat, but just appeared to eat. 
No, Abraham and Sarah and their servants prepared a feast for them, and they ate it, both the angels and the Lord himself. And we see at least another instance of something like this in Scripture. In John chapter 21, the end of John's gospel, we see the risen Jesus eating breakfast, bread and fish, with the disciples. Jesus at that time was in his risen, glorified body. So this suggests to us that our glorified bodies, when the time comes, both in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth, will be capable of eating, and that there likely will be actual, literal feasting. As when it talks about such things as the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, verse 9, I don't believe we should see that image as merely metaphorical, although the phrase obviously contains some symbolism, but there also will be literal eating and feasting, it seems. It's important for us to consider the scene here now in verses 9 through 15. Not only what gets said, but also some of the -the behind-the-scenes information. The rules of hospitality in that culture involved the man or men of the house entertaining the visitors. So Sarah is not with them, and that would have been normal. She assisted Abraham with the preparations, as did their servants with them, but she would not have sat and talked and ate with them. But the Lord opens up the conversation, asking about her whereabouts, and he even knows her name. The most likely reason for the Lord asking her whereabouts is that the conversation is about to turn in a direction that will specifically involve her. And as we see in the text, she was listening at the door of the tent, which I don't think would have been considered breaking any rule of etiquette in that culture. But we understand that it's now been 24 years since God first promised Abraham a son. At first, in chapter 12, the promise was generic you'll have many offspring. Then God promised him in chapter 15 he would have an heir, a son, his own son from his own body. Then in chapter 17, as we saw last week, God promised him a son with his wife Sarah, a son specifically to be named Isaac, a son who would be born within the next year. These promises are getting more and more specific and detailed all along. Now we see God show up again to deliver another word, and this time the promise is explicitly given so that Sarah can hear as well. And I think we need to pay attention to what's said in verses 11 and 12. First, the narrator is telling us that the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. That is simply a a euphemistic way of saying she's postmenopausal. She's not just barren as she had already been up to this point. By this point, By all natural means, there's no longer any capability left in her physical body for her to get pregnant. And then by what she says to herself, it's actually reasonable to take what she says as a remark that perhaps even Abraham and Sarah are so old. In fact, the King James Version says in verse 11 that they were well stricken with age. It's one of my favorite phrases in the King James, well stricken with age. They were so old that perhaps the two of them have even stopped having sexual relations. There's some hint in the language Sarah uses and what she says to herself that she may may be thinking in those terms, at least somewhat, as well as in the pleasure of bearing and raising a child. And if that's the case, it's entirely possible the reason the Lord showed up again at this time was to reiterate the promise given to Abraham in the last chapter to both of them this time. 
in order to give them the reassurance that they will indeed have a son and that they should not permanently discontinue their marital relations. I mean, this conception that Sarah will undergo is miraculous to an extent in that she's postmenopausal, but this is not going to be like Mary conceiving Jesus without any human man even involved. No, this is truly going to be Abraham's and Sarah's son, even though it will still be a miraculous conception because of her age. And I think the remainder of that conversation can be instructive as well. We see the customary etiquette of the time playing out. The Lord knows that Sarah laughed to herself, but Sarah is in the tent, as we said earlier. And so the Lord asks Abraham the question, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he reiterates the promise that their son will be born by this time next year. And what happens next is noteworthy because Sarah now actually breaks etiquette and responds directly to the Lord herself. And we can see why that happens. In verse 15, it says she was afraid. And in her fear, she both breaks the rules of etiquette of the time by responding directly to this visitor, who also happens to be the Lord himself, and she also denies having laughed. And I think this is the real difference between the way it's presented here with Sarah and with Abraham in the previous chapter. When Abraham laughed, the Lord then plainly contradicted him and his human plan to have the Lord make Ishmael Abraham's heir. And indeed, he said that the son should be named Isaac, which means he laughed. Here, when the Lord speaks to Sarah after she laughs, in her fear, she denies having done it. And the Lord does not allow that denial of the truth to pass without correcting her. And so we see something familiar here to what we saw from Abraham earlier. In his fear, Abraham had lied to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife. Here, out of her fear, Sarah lies to the Lord about having laughed. If there's any lesson in there, if there's any caution for God's people, the caution is this. Fear leads people to sin, especially in the realm of telling lies instead of telling the truth. When my kids were much younger, I told them often that I would be far more upset with them about a situation if I found out they had lied about it than I would be if they told the truth. As Christians, we cannot allow ourselves to remain slaves to fear because fear leads us to sin. Fear leads us to sin in areas of commission, that is to say, actively lying to cover up the truth, hoping to protect ourselves, as we see here with Sarah and also with Abraham back in chapter 12. But fear can lead us to sin in areas of omission as well, things we ought to do but refuse to do because we're afraid. I think that's abundantly common in our culture. We don't speak out against evil because we're afraid that we'll be retaliated against for telling the truth in our wicked culture. We don't speak the truth in love in confronting sin in others because we're afraid of what their reaction will be. We don't speak the truth about our own sin because we're too afraid that it means someone won't love us anymore or maybe even that God won't love us anymore. Or we don't speak the truth about God and about his created order in our world today because, again, we're afraid of backlash in our society. And trust me, I'm not saying there won't be any backlash if we all just stand up and tell the truth in our society far more often. There surely will be some backlash, maybe even a lot. 
What I am saying is that the Lord calls us to trust in him above our fears and trust in both his abilities to direct the consequences of our courageous truth-telling for his glory, even if it is painful for us, but also to reward us greatly in eternity for our courage now. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. It's his spirit we're to rely on, his spirit of power. We never know what kind of effect the power of the Holy Spirit will have on a person or in a situation when we bring, when we bring God's truth to bear in a conversation or in a situation or even in a confrontation. And that spirit of love and self-control will enable us to not only overcome fear and speak boldly, but to do so in a manner that is not attention-seeking or self-righteous. The Puritans used to have a word for that kind of thing. They called it vainglory, which can turn even our most righteous, well-intentioned deeds into sin by excessive pride in them, or boastfulness, or pomp, or so forth. The Spirit will aid us in avoiding vainglory. So friends, let us pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us with power, to fill us with love, to fill us with self-control in order that we may overcome our fears and not sin either by commission or omission. Finally, I think this is an appropriate text in which to talk about God's timing. God's timing. Between the time when God first promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, and when Isaac was finally born, which we'll see in chapter 21, 25 years went by. 25 years. When our current human lifespans are in the range of 70 to 80 years, that's about a third of a normal life. One third of a normal life to see the promise of God come to pass. In Abraham's case, since he lived to be 175 years old, 25 years was one-seventh of his life. But still, even in that case, 25 years is a long time in a human sense. And that's the very aspect of this that we need to confront. Our lives are finite. God is infinite and eternal. James chapter 4, verse 14 says that our lives are like a mist or a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Like a, a puff of smoke that you can see one instant and the next instant it's gone. But most of the time, that's not how we feel about our lives. Every once in a while, we, we do get the sense that our lives have passed by in a whirlwind. But most of the time, it seems as if every minute of our lives is lasting forever especially when we're in the midst of undergoing trials. And so we might reasonably ask, why on earth did God tell Abraham about the promise 25 years before it came to pass? Why make them wait that long? I think there are three reasons we often hear as an answer to that question. And I don't think any single one of them by itself is the answer. I think all three reasons played a role. The first reason is that Abraham and Sarah were not yet ready to receive the promise. They were not yet prepared in the way God wanted them to be. 
Now, there's not much in the way of scriptural detail we can lend to that description of Abraham and Sarah specifically, but there is a general scriptural principle we can turn to. The reality in our lives is that once a person is converted, that is, once a person becomes a Christian, has a regenerate heart, is declared justified before God, then for the rest of that person's life, God is about the business of sanctifying him or her. Any true Christian, according to Romans 8, verse 29, is predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that sanctification process takes time. So any true Christian, despite the fact that sanctification isn't a linear progression, that's to say it's not a constant upward trajectory, but rather a progression of fits and starts, positives and negatives, leaps and falls, peaks and valleys. Despite that, any true Christian over time ought to be more sanctified than they were at a much earlier period in their life. And so it's a reasonable conclusion that at some level, God knew that Abraham and Sarah needed that much time in their walk before they were ready to receive what was promised. The second reason we might give for Abraham and Sarah having to wait 25 years before receiving what was promised is that God wanted to increase their faith. Well, that certainly is a reasonable statement. Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not just a weak hope. It's the conviction that God will make good on his promises. And that conviction comes not from inside the depths of ourselves, but that faith itself is a gift of God. And how God gives that gift is his prerogative. Sometimes God may give the gift of faith in an instant. I think this happens to some extent to every Christian at one point or another in his life. Some of you have heard me discuss how not long after I was converted, I, was, I very quickly began to wonder about something I had learned in my academic upbringing, that if the earth and the universe were only a few thousand years ago, as the scripture plainly seems to teach, how is it that we can see light from stars that are billions of light years from us? And in that instant of consciously forming that question, the Lord simply gave me the faith to trust him at his word what his word plainly says about his work of creation, and that if I ever needed to know a better answer to that question, he would show me a better answer. And indeed, eventually, he did show me better answers to that question, but the faith to trust him and his word came in just a moment. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord gave me instantaneously all the faith I'd ever need for the rest of my life at that point, not by a long shot. I can assure you. And, and this is the case, I think, for most of us. There are instances in which the Lord gives us a clearly discernible measure of faith to accept him at his word about something that's deeply important to us at the moment. Whether it's a, a calm assurance in the midst of a serious tragedy that he is with you. Or whether it's the deep realization that, as Romans 8.39 teaches us, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We need moments like this in our lives as believers. But we also need those periods of waiting, those longer periods of time when we hear of one of God's promises to the time in which it is fulfilled. We need that growth in our faith as well. 
And that growth tends to come not in an instant, but in walking with the Lord and before the Lord for longer periods and seeing his faithfulness in a thousand little ways, seeing his answers to prayer in a thousand little ways along the path to bigger answers to prayer. That kind of faith builds from walking with God for longer periods and waiting on him. And since we're talking about this second reason, I want to stop and and mention the popular charismatic response that's often given to people who are undergoing suffering. Just as I said about Abraham and Sarah, that it was 25 years between them hearing the promise for the first time and when they'd received the promise, people often say that a Christian undergoes suffering or extended periods of spiritual dryness or something similar because they just don't have enough faith. And I think that's one way in which overly charismatic churches can abuse people because they believe that the purest Christian walk involves no suffering at all. And friends, that is bad theology. Here's another example of how theology matters because bad theology in that instance abuses people. Christians need to be taught how to walk in faith amid suffering rather than be abused by telling them that all their suffering is because of their lack of faith. Right theology matters a great deal in how you minister to people. The third reason I suggest for Abraham and Sarah having to wait that 25 years is that the period of time of waiting had nothing to do with them of all. It had nothing to do with them at all. Now that may sound a little strange to us, Because we tend to be incredibly centered on ourselves and on our lives and on what's important to us. But the reality is that God is sovereignly superintending all the events in the entire universe at every single moment. God's timing for the birth of Isaac may have had to do with a thousand other things that had nothing to do with Abraham and Sarah. It may have had to do with what was going on in the other nations that would eventually be intimately involved in the lives of Abraham's descendants nations like Egypt. It may have had to do with something we talked about in an earlier message, that God's judgment on those other nations that the Israelites would once uh, one day displace, that their iniquity was not yet complete. Remember, we saw God say that about the Amorites in chapter 15, verse 16. Their iniquity was not yet complete. It may even have had to do with the timing of climate patterns that would one day cause the massive drought and famine that would lead to the rising to power in Egypt of Abraham's great-grandson. It could have had to do with a thousand other things and even more. Do you see, God's timing on something that affects you intimately could be related to any number of things that have nothing to do with you or with your level of faith or with your level of sanctification. What should that realization do for us? It should bring us peace. Peace to know that when we, having done all we can do with regard to our own faith, our own sanctification, our own obedience, that we simply continue to stand firm and have faith in God, knowing that he is the one who is working out for good all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we even have an illustration of that good news, because just like Abraham, who lied and misled out of fear in order to protect himself, but still appears in that Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11, Sarah too 
despite her moments of doubt and her fear that led to her, led to her lying to the Lord, she appears in that same chapter as a model of faith for us. Hebrews 11, verse 11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful who had promised. Are you waiting on the Lord for his promises to come to pass? Then, yes, check up on your own obedience, attend to your own sanctification, pray that the Lord would increase your faith, but having done all those things, then stand firm. Stand firm against doubt, stand firm against fear, stand firm against the evil one who desires to rob you of your inheritance and of your peace. And relying on the Holy Spirit, that spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control, trust in the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a sure word, a sure word that, like the models you've given us, Abraham and Sarah, in these last several chapters, Lord, they had their faults. They had their flaws. But by your grace and your covenant love that you set upon them, they had a faith to be emulated. They had faith that you could bring dead bodies back to life and bring new life from the dead. Father, we pray that even with our flaws, our sins, our weaknesses, our infirmities, that you would also grant us that faith, Lord. We know that you've set your covenant love upon us because your covenant love was perfect between your son Jesus and yourself. And Jesus lived a perfect life in place of the life we could never live. And he went and died a horrendous death. A death that he died in our place. So we could be adopted as sons. All of us, men and women. Boys and girls. Adopted as children, co-heirs with Christ in the family of God. And so, Father, I just pray that your, your, your spirit would bring us that peace. That peace of knowing that despite the world's rejection of your truths, rejection of plain reality, that you are superintending and sovereignly guiding and leading all things, and you are doing so for our good and for your glory. So give us peace, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us more fear of you and less fear of mankind. And in Jesus' name, I pray that your people would experience that peace right this minute and throughout this week. Amen. We have an opportunity to celebrate something symbolic. I I mentioned earlier 
that it talks in Revelation 19, verse 9, about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe that that is a real thing. But we have a supper before us, which is also real, but it symbolizes that marriage supper of the Lamb. It doesn't just look back to the supper that the Lord celebrated with his apostles, the last Passover before he was put to death. It does look back to that, but it also looks forward to when he will come again in glory and then we will celebrate with him eternally. So let's celebrate that now.